Well, good morning once again. My name is Chris Lejeune, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. The passage that Ruth just read for us sees us picking up uh, in Second Peter, a book that we started looking at around this time last year. But before we dive in, let me take one more time to go and pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you for the freedom of being able to meet here weekly and to worship you, to praise you, and to hear the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that as uh, we come to this time of preaching now, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond to what you have to tell us. Father, I pray that you would give me a spirit of humility as I preach. Lord, give me wisdom to proclaim truth. And most importantly, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing is believing, as the saying goes. It's the idea that you can really only believe something that if there is clear, tangible, physical evidence in front of you. And for some people, it seems that their whole lives are based around this principle. I remember very clearly being in the ninth grade. Uh, one of our new substitute teachers was busy introducing himself to us. And as he went about telling us about his life, his various accolades, the books that he had written, the time that he was arrested in Spain, he kind of turned his attention and very casually, I could say, but with quite a bit of pomp and with a lot of pride, proclaimed, I only believe in things that I can see. Therefore, I do not believe in God. That statement has stuck with me for 19 years. And as I consider it more and more, I wonder how many of us are living our lives according to that principle. Maybe not as brash or as arrogantly as was stated by my teacher, but still the idea that you can only believe something or hold to something because of the physical evidence that's in front of you or because of what you can experience. I suspect that for many of us, perhaps we've even begun to approach our Christian lives the very same way. But is that how it should be? As we read a passage like Second like Peter that was just read for us, what are we to make of it? Should we, be, should we be basing our belief on personal and tangible experiences? And to help us think through that question, to help us think through this passage, we're going to look at three points this morning, and that's going to serve as our outline. So if you're taking notes, three points. Point number one, an eyewitness testimony in verses 16 to 18. It's point number two, a more confirmed testimony, verse 19. And point number three, the source of this testimony in verses 20 and 21. So an eyewitness testimony, a more confirmed testimony, and the source of this testimony. Let's look at our first point, an eyewitness testimony. Now, just before getting to the section, where we see Peter displaying a great desire and a great care for his audience. 
So if you look in your Bibles at verses 14 and 15, it says, Since I know that putting off my body will be soon, he's referring to his death, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's really passionate. Even following his death, he wants these people that he's writing to to be able to recall what he has told them. But why? Look there at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's passionate because what he has been sharing with them is not some myth, not some legend or made-up story. It is real. Now, I'm sure if you recall studying history, you would at some point have looked at mythology, various different kinds of mythology. So take Greek mythology, for example. You have the mighty Hercules, that son of Zeus. You have hideous creatures like the snake-head Medusa, or even the half-man, half-bull minotaur. Some myths and legends aren't quite as scary, and there's some that my daughter loves. Unicorns, mermaids. These legends tend to date back, to date back thousands of years. But myths and legends aren't just from long ago. Today we have urban legends. Stories that seem to either freak us out or gross us out. I'm sure we've all known someone or heard of that person who went to the fast food restaurant, took a bite out of their hamburger and got that used band-aid in there, or someone who grabbed a bucket of fried chicken and turned out to be a fried rat in there as well. And we know these stories are true, right? Because we knew someone who knew someone who had a cousin, who had a neighbor, who had an aunt who this happened to. It's a true story. Not quite. These are all good stories, but they're all missing a crucial element. A witness. Someone with first-hand experience that it actually happened to, that we can actually have access to. And Peter is saying here that what was shared with these believers was not a myth, was not a story. Why? Because of something that separates myth and legend from fact. Eyewitness accounts. And, those, and these accounts are not just from someone who knew someone. It's Peter himself who was a witness. I mean, this idea of a witness makes sense, right? Think about, think about this. We rely on the evidence of witnesses all the time. Anytime you have to sign a legal document, it's done in the presence of witnesses. When you go to a wedding, when people are invited to witness the covenant of marriage, you have people there to witness and sign the, the marriage certificate. If you're from the Philippines, you have all those Ninongs and Ninangs that are there to witness the wedding. All there to affirm and confirm the truth of something. To be able to say, yes, that is exactly what happened. That was the experience. So Peter's testimony is truthful and sure because he was a direct eyewitness. Now, not only were Peter and the others eyewitnesses to Christ's ministry, but Peter, James, and John 
we're given a glimpse of something that is arguably one of the greatest moments in all of Scripture. Something that, with the exception of maybe the resurrection, surely would have changed everyone's life, anyone's life. Look at verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. If ever you needed proof, surely this would be it, right? Now, just for a moment, imagine if you were in the exact same situation as Peter. I mean, surely this would shape your very existence. Not only does this affirm everything that you've been experiencing up to now, but surely it would affect everything that would happen from this moment on. No matter what happened, you would be able to face things with supreme confidence and certainty because of it. I mean, seriously, what an experience. Can you imagine standing there and suddenly there's Christ in all of his majesty. Next to him, you have Elijah, Moses, two of the greatest prophets, people you would have heard about growing up your whole life. And on top of that, you've got this voice from heaven, the very voice of God thundering down. Wow, that's amazing. What should we make of this? Is this the kind of experience that we should all be looking for? Maybe not uh, to this extreme extent, but should we be looking for clear physical signs from God? Should we all be looking for our own personal transfiguration moments? I wonder if that's what you're hoping for this morning. It may not be as full on as seeing Christ like this, but... Do you long for God to physically reveal himself or physically reveal his plan and purpose for your life to make it so clear? Or do you find yourself reading into every single situation? Are you so sure that everything that happens is God's way of telling you which job you should take or who it is that you should marry? Or do you perhaps find yourself stuck with fear because you are so concerned with choosing the wrong path, not choosing the path that God has planned for you, that you just seem to collapse into a heap and are paralyzed by fear of making the wrong decision. And perhaps you're in the midst of a season of depression and discouragement, longing to feel that same emotion you felt when you first came to faith, or that emotion you felt when you were at a specific worship service, And you just know that everything would be fine if you could just get back to that place. If you could just get that experience back, get that emotional high that affirmed, that helped you to know that you are one of God's children. If only. Friends, if we are constantly looking for these moments to affirm our faith, then we run the risk of turning our faith into an outcome-based faith, a results-based faith. Our assurance, comes ba- assurance becomes based on feelings and experience and what we can see rather than on truth. Now, this is not to say that personal experiences are bad. Please, don't get me wrong. Remembering God's faithfulness to you is at times one of the most encouraging things during difficult times. 
But do you find yourself spending so much time looking for some sort of physical evidence to, to cling to, to reaffirm your faith? Have you had some experience that at one point made God seem just so real to you, but now he just seems so distant? Or maybe you're not even at this point yet. Maybe you just want God to prove himself to you. You're sitting here this morning because you want God to show himself to you. And you have a checklist of things that this is what God needs to do in order to prove himself to me. Longing for experiences. But what happened to Peter? When the time came, this incredible, this undeniable experience that would seemingly be life-changing appeared to have just meant nothing to him as he denied Christ three times. Peter, who walked with Christ for three and a half years, he wasn't able to rely on his experiences with Jesus, even witnessing that majesty of Christ, witnessing a taste of what it's going to be like when we see Christ in heaven, even hearing the very voice of God, didn't prevent him from simply falling away, from denying Jesus. His hope and certainty as time went on had to come from something else, something more certain, more sure. For Peter and the other eyewitnesses, as affirming and confirming as this experience must have been, he is quick to remind them, to remind us that there is something that is more certain. Which brings us to our second point, a more confirmed testimony. When Peter wrote this letter, it was more than 30 years since Christ's death and resurrection. Christianity was spreading, churches were popping up all over the place, very much like the ones that Peter was writing this letter to. And one can imagine the, the many things that, that would have been experienced, watching the, the church grow, being able to experience the, the receiving of the Spirit. I mean, all these things that seem to be utterly life-changing, and yet he encourages his readers to look to something that is more fully confirmed. Now, it would be hard to imagine something as confirming as seeing Christ, as seeing a Moses, as seeing Elijah, and hearing that voice from heaven. But Peter says that the prophetic word is exactly that. Why? Why is the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Why is it more sure? And following on from that, why does he tell us that we should do well to pay attention to it? This truth that Peter has been sharing about Christ is, you know, it, it's not a story. It's not something made up. It's not a case of just some guy who supposedly received a revelation and then started a church, as is the case with Mormonism. It's not some guy who felt he had to go on a journey of discovery and spend six and a half years trying to find himself, and then you have Buddhism. No, the testimony that Peter was sharing about Christ goes back to the very beginning find ourselves right in the Garden of Eden. And that leads us to ask three questions. What is it that God's Word has to tell us? What does God's Word have to tell us? Why is it more fully confirmed? And why do we need to pay attention? As we consider that first question, what does God, God's Word have to tell us? The reality is that 
we could spend lifetimes studying God's word, looking at what it has to say to us, and only scratch the surface. But there are some things in his word that are really important for us to know. Firstly, God is the one who created the world and everything in it. As we look around at the natural world, as we gaze up at the heavens and just try to comprehend the vastness of that expansive space, as we explore the, the deepest trenches of the oceans, God's word, the Bible tells us that God is the one who created it all. Everything. His word tells us that he created man and woman, Adam and Eve, to be in a perfect relationship with God. It tells us that rather than enjoying that relationship, they believed the lies of Satan. They rebelled against God, and because of that, sin entered the world. God's word tells us that despite this, he made a promise. He made a promise to the man and the woman that the woman's offspring one day would come, would crush the head of Satan, breaking the curse of sin. His word tells us how he chose a people a specific people for himself, how he rescued those people out of captivity, how he brought them into a promised land, a land that he promised he would do, and how those same people, despite all of their experiences, still rejected him. His word tells us how a virgin conceived and that the Savior of the world was born. It tells us that the Savior is fully God, and fully man, that he lived a perfect, obedient life to God the Father, honoring him with every part of him. It tells us how this man, Jesus, was sacrificed on his own accord on our behalf, paying the penalty, dying the death that each and every one of us deserves because we have rejected and rebelled against God. The word tells us that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand. It tells us that our only hope for salvation is to repent and put our faith and trust in what Christ has done. His word tells us that one day, the same Christ is going to return, and he's going to judge the living and the dead, and all those who have rejected him are going to spend an eternity in hell. All those who have put their faith and trust in him, friends, we get to share an eternity in heaven. Gazing upon that face, getting to see the same kind of majesty that, that Peter was able to witness to, getting to worship him in person for an eternity. We know it's true. The Bible says it. And this leads us to our next question. How is it more fully confirmed? Because the prophecies made in the Bible, the things spoken about in God's word, and for the people that Peter was writing to, the prophecies surrounding Christ have happened. They have come true. The word pointed to Christ, and Christ's transfiguration affirmed that very word. Not only that, but the Bible is full of examples of God's faithfulness. And witnesses to his faithfulness. We just have to think about Joshua 4 that Scott took us through last week. Here you have close to a million people entering, being witness to entering the promised land. 
witnessing it. Not only that, but that's close to a million people who would have been witness to stepping onto dry ground that only moments ago was a flooding river. We have the promise made to Adam and Eve that there would be the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. We see that that is fulfilled in Christ. So many people witnessed him. Not only his ministry while on earth. You know, we, we can think of examples like all those people who ate of the fish and loaves. Or even the people who were in the room when Jesus healed the paralytic, who forgave him his sins, and then said to him, get up, take your mat, and go home. It wasn't just Jesus and this guy. It were witnesses. People were able to say, yes, that is what happened. And not just while he was alive, after his resurrection. The Bible tells us that at one time, he appeared to 500 people. That's about the same amount of people that are in this room right now. Each a witness to being able to say, yes, I saw the resurrected Christ. As much as these witness testimonies affirm Jesus, the truth about Jesus has its foundation in the scriptures. It has already been confirmed it's true. Just turn our Bibles to Luke 24, uh, verse 27, the road to Aramaeus. You have Jesus walking with his two disciples. It's, a very, it's the resurrected Jesus himself who says to them and explains that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It all points to Christ. So then why does Peter say that we would do well to pay attention? Which is our third question. Look there at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed or more sure. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In many ways, this verse serves as both a warning and a comfort for us. A warning in the sense that you would do well to pay attention to what the Word of God has to say because it contains the only way of salvation. And that everything that it says is true and will come to pass because so much of it already has. So when you get to a passage like John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need to take that seriously. It's not open to interpretation. Or James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That, for me, is a very, very real warning as I preached to you this morning. It is truth. Because I know the Bible does not contradict itself. It does not confuse things. And the prophecies of God have come true. Friends, as you sit here this morning, don't take the warnings of Scripture lightly. Don't throw out the things that you don't like and just keep the things that you do like. If it's in the Bible, then God meant for it to be there. No matter how difficult what you read may be to comprehend. At the same time, while Scripture is there to warn us, it's also there to comfort us. In every way, it is the very word of life. Not only does it tell us what our biggest problem is, the fact that we have rebelled against God, but it points us to the only way of salvation. The only hope that is found in Christ. 
And it's also a, a comfort to, to weary sinners. I love the analogy that Peter uses here. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I remember as a child, I was terrified of the dark. I could not sleep in the dark. There were times where my parents would come in and, and show that there was nothing to be afraid of. But as soon as those lights went out, I was terrified. So what did my parents do? They got me a nightlight. Now, what gave me comfort wasn't the fact that I was remembering what they told me about something not being there or the fact there was nothing to be afraid of. What gave me comfort was the fact that that light revealed that there was nothing to be afraid of. It illuminated the room around me until the morning came. In many ways, it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. In this dark and broken world that we live in, when facing all manners of struggle, are you looking for some experience to sustain you? Or are you turning to the Word to sustain you, to bring that comfort that you need? When we are burdened beyond belief, we've lost our job, we're having issues with our family, we can turn to Matthew eleven twenty-eight and be comforted by the words of Christ as he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or Matthew six thirty-one. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When you're feeling like you are inundated with all manners of temptation, the likes of which you are so certain that no one has ever experienced or has any idea what you're going through, we open our Bibles to Hebrews. And we are reminded that we have a great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Turn to God's word. When you are at your wit's end and you, you just seem to have lost a handle on everything, you can't care for your family, you can't seem to do anything right, and you just find yourself collapsing and shouting, God, why? You can turn to Psalm 46. And be still and know that he is God, no matter what the situation is. When diagnosed with a terminal illness, when you're literally staring death in the face, because of what Christ has done for us, we can turn to 1 Corinthians and confidently say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? all there in God's word. As we read the, the words of scripture, we begin to see that there is so much more to it. It's not just a collection of clever writings. It's not just some good moral standard for us to attempt to live our lives by. As I said earlier, it is the very word of life. How is this possible? Why is it so different from other writings? What sets it apart? And that brings us to our third and final point. 
the source of this testimony. Everything we have been thinking through so far is bound up in the fact that Scripture is utterly unique to every other kind of writing that exists today. And this only serves to affirm what Peter has been saying. So look again, verses 20 and 21. Look, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We've already discussed the fact that Scripture is not some myth or legend or made-up story. And again, as we see this, we see in these words of Peter, it's just underlining their statements, underlining the uniqueness of God's Word. Let me try to explain this. So this idea of what Peter's talking about here is referred to as the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. I know it's a, a bit of a mouthful, but it's the idea that Scripture was not produced by the will of man. Rather, God prompts the human speech of Scripture. So a way we could look at it is that this inspiration is a kind of compatibilism. We have divine sovereignty on the one hand. We have human agency on the other hand. They're not at war with each other. They are perfectly compatible with one another. So then how was Scripture written? Well, it was written by human beings. But... God is the one who spoke it. He is the one who breathed it out. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we think about this doctrine, when we start asking the question, who wrote scripture? We have to say both of these answers, both God and man. And which of, the, which of these two agents had primacy? Who had priority? Well, God. God is the one who worked in a sovereign way so that humans wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. This was not by divine dictation, as with some beliefs. These men wrote out of their hearts. They chose what it was that they wanted to write. But every word they wrote was exactly as God wanted it to be. Because they were moved to write in that way. It's just incredible to think of the various prophecies that have been proclaimed by Scripture have been affirmed that even though the Bible was written over a period of thousands of years, it's perfectly coherent, does not contradict itself, and has a central storyline pointing to Jesus. All written exactly how God had desired for it to be. You know, it can be so easy for us to open the scriptures and, and come with questions like, well, why doesn't the Bible say anything about dinosaurs? Or if God wanted me to know about something, then surely he would have put it in his word. But if God is the one who gave us the word through human writers, then we need to believe that he has given us exactly what he meant to. And he has given us exactly what it is that we need. There isn't anything that needs to be added. There isn't anything that needs to be taken away. We began this sermon looking at an incredible, incredible eyewitness account. But the reality is, friends, that we don't need to physically see God. 
We don't need a transfiguration moment to believe, to affirm our faith. As Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hopeful, the convictions of things not seen. That, however, was not good enough for my teacher. It's not what he was looking for. He wanted something else. But it's not just people like him who put so much emphasis on actually seeing. We just have to look at the passage that Andrew read for us earlier. It's a reminder of that. Listen again to verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, whatever situation we're facing right now, whatever trials, whatever temptations, whatever the case may be, you don't need to have that physical presence in front of you. God has given us reminders in so many other ways. As a way of encouragement, listen to these words of the beloved Apostle John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father God, you, in your mercy, in your grace to us, have given us your word. You have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures. Father, I pray that as we consider this truth, that we would be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. That we would be a people who turn to your word to find comfort, who turn to your word to find joy and hope in the darkest times, knowing that everything your word says will come true. Father, I pray that as we consider these truths this morning, we would seek to live those lives by faith so that your name would be glorified to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.